are now listening to The Big Trade with Peter Pham, enlightening conversations for maximum market returns. Chris, welcome to The Big Trade series. Looking forward to this conversation. There's a lot of stuff going on in terms of the corporate bond market, and I'd love to discuss with you about that. There's a few things prior to doing that that we need to cover, and one of them would be about the modernization and the structuring of equity markets. Perhaps you could give us some context to that uh, before we dive into the corporate bond market. Sure. I actually like talking across asset classes because I think one of the most important things um, if you are going to try to predict what's going to happen in frontier markets or unstructured markets, it's really, really um, vital that you know the history of how markets that we consider to be modernized markets actually came to be. Because at some point in time, all of these markets looked pretty similar. A lot of them weren't using technology. Um, the trading was occurring um, in a very manual way, but some markets took off and became what we know today as being fully digitized markets or electronic markets, and other markets really resemble uh, in, in function and form the same uh, practices and uh, customs that were observed uh, almost 50 years ago. So it's, it's very important to put those things in context. Um, but I would just say that the equity markets um, are probably one of the most misunderstood markets um, in terms of uh, how they actually function. Um, I think a lot of people look at today's equity markets and they assumed that this is a very recent event that came about uh, pretty quickly. But actually, the equity markets have been really going through a maturation process, a pretty significant one, over almost a 60-year period. And um, you cited that the NASDAQ was one of the key catalysts for all of this. Can you elaborate a little bit more to that? Sure. So basically, one of the, one of the biggest events that occurred in the equity markets, um, it's actually something that a lot of people don't know about. It's the flash crash of 1962. Instead of a flash crash in 30 minutes, this crash and then rally occurred over a three-day period um, starting on May 29th in 1962. And what was really important about this event is it challenged the assumptions about how the market worked. Now, the assumptions prior to 62 were that market makers and specialists were the shock absorbers in the market and they present, prevented massive volatility um, from occurring by basically being the other side when people were trying to buy or sell en masse. And what they found in 62 was that during the crash um, where the market was losing value, special in Specialists and market makers were selling into the panic. And then during the rally, specialists and market makers were buying into the rally. So they actually were participating in the run for the exits and participating in the run back up. The other thing that they found um, that really changed the dynamics in the market was the, the, the actual group that brought the market back were mutual funds and insurance companies. And this was very important because it's right after 62 that we see mutual funds, insurance companies, and effectively what we know as the buy side starting to call the shots in terms of how the future market was going to develop. Can you see that sort of, there's a cultural dynamic in the way that I look at markets. I look at markets like they're cultural systems. They're not systems of information. 
And if you look at markets that way, it's a lot easier to understand why people do certain things. And over time, cultures change, just like cultures and societies change. So we think today that arranged marriage is kind of outdated, something that you don't do anymore. But at a different time period in human culture, in human society, arranged marriages made a ton of sense. <laughs> Pre-Tinder days. <laughs> right, right, right. So anyway, uh, right. so uh, when you think of markets as culture, it's all how do you perceive the way the market works. That's culture. Just like how do you perceive the way the world works? That's effectively your cultural lens. So the, the crash of 62 really started to shift the cultural lens. And what it did in the equity markets is um, it gave the buy side uh, much more of a voice in terms of how the market was going to be structured going forward. So what happened in the 70s with NASDAQ and the introduction of NASDAQ? Okay. So what you had in the 60s leading up to NASDAQ was was very, very similar to what you have going on in the corporate bond market right now, mm -hmm. where you had the market continuing to grow. Um, again, this is a more prolonged period of time, but eff effectively, after, the, after World War II, you had um, the decimation of Europe, and you had basically the revitalization of the United States. So from a financing standpoint, the United States, in particular the New York Stock Exchange, was where it was at for capitalizing industry. Mm -hmm. So you had, you had growth in the U.S. equity market effectively from 45 all the way through to 70 as we, as we transitioned from a wartime economy to a privatized economy. And so as the market got bigger, you also saw asset managers and the buy side really getting bigger. So at the beginning of the 60s, about 25% of the dollar volume on the New York Stock Exchange was coming from institutional uh, buy side. When you get to the early 70s, that number is about 75%. So that started uh, a friction because the market really was not designed for institutional flow of that magnitude. If you think about it, I mean, the, the equity markets, for example, the crash of 29, many people point to the retail activity in the equity markets as being the the sort of the catalyst of the crash of 29, people having too much margin in their individual accounts. So you literally had a shift in terms of the dynamics around um, how the market was trading. And you can see the evidence of that shift through the development of what's called the third market. And the third market was an ideology that, that basically stated, hey, is it possible for us to actually trade outside of the context of the specialist? Can we create a market that doesn't require the specialist? And this was basically born out of the frustration that the buy side was having with the ability for market makers and specialists to, to handle their institutional flow. But before we kind of talk about equity market structure, it's really, really important to differentiate listed from unlisted or OTC. Okay. When we talk about OTC markets, we're talking about a certain type of structure. But actually, from a function and form standpoint, there wasn't a big, big difference between the way trading occurred listing in OTC from a market practices standpoint. Um, you had a bit more formalization around an exchange, but trading was still done manually. It was still done between human beings and it was still very much a voice-traded market. But what you had with the OTC stocks... I guess it, the best way for me to describe this, to put it in sort of bond terms, OTC stocks were considered high yield because the companies that were trading OTC or trading in the NASDAQ markets did not have the credit quality or could not meet the listing standards of NYSE. Right. 
So you're getting the big, well-capitalized companies, the investment-grade stocks trading in the, in the not New York Stock Exchange, and you're getting the non-investment-grade trading in the OTC markets or trading NASDAQ. Now, we call it NASDAQ, but what's interesting is that NASDAQ is actually a thing. It's, a, it's something that was created. Um, it's not a marketplace. And basically, at the, at the end of the 70s, NASDAQ uh, trading or basically unlisted equity trading was facing a crisis in that uh, there was really a lack of confidence around basically the trading process. And in response to that lack of confidence, the National Association of Securities Dealers Mm -hmm. got together and built um, an automated quotation screen. And that's where we get the, the moniker NASDAQ. The AQ stands for automated quotes. And this architecture seems really simple, but it's actually a critical piece of architecture for, for market modernization. Because what happened was, uh, NASDAQ ended up moving from a pricing process that was very much in the dark mm-hmm. to a pricing process that occurred in an open forum. And what that pricing process was prior to NASDAQ, if you wanted to trade a stock, you literally had to look in a magazine, um, something called the pink sheets. The pink sheets are still around today for things that are too small to be really quoted on the board. Right. But back in the day, you know, if you wanted to trade a stock at 11 o'clock, you were looking at a publication that was put out four hours earlier um, that told you what dealers might be interested in the stock, but you had no idea who was the best bidder, best offer. Excellent. And... How about we kind of accelerate this this point is now basically we have online trading with discount brokerage firms giving us a very tight spreads for most, you know, largely liquid companies. The the margins for some of these broker dealers have improved a lot via volume. What what allowed all of this to take shape right after the implementation of NASDAQ? Well, well, that's actually, Peter, where I think there's this sort of lost history around market modernization. Because NASDAQ was not a trading platform. All it was was a piece of architecture to centralize pricing. Electronic trading, trading did really not take hold into the market until almost 20 years after NASDAQ was, in, was put into place. So, 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 there's, so what was going on between 71 and basically 87? And what was happening was... You just had a better functioning market as a result of centralizing key data. Now, I said the crash of 62, a little known crash, um, created massive market reforms. Well, so did the crash of 87. The crash of 87 put the equity markets really on a path to electronification. Because prior to 87, you did have electronic trading. It just wasn't a very robust part of how business was getting done. You know, the first electronic order order book was actually 10 years earlier in 77. It was something called Computer Assisted Trading System um, that was launched by the Toronto Stock Exchange. It was never meant to be a, uh, a big part of how equities traded. But what happened in the crash of 87 was you had something called the Small Order Execution System. You also had something called the DOT System for listed. These are two electronic trading systems where you could send your orders electronically to be executed by market makers and specialists. And in 87, the market makers and specialists just simply turned their machines off when the market was cratering. From from a context of this, I, I'd love to segue 
this into the corporate debt market as well, as, especially from the perspective that you're talking about crashes. And when you're referring to 87, I, I am now looking back at my terminal and I'm looking at peaks of corporate debt relative to GDP. And I'm seeing right. 97, 2007. And I'm starting to see that same peak now in uh, 2016. I think this creates a great segue to discuss about many of the concerns and interests that you have in terms of the corporate debt market as well. Well, look, I mean, um, this, this, the, common, the common denominator between um, what, really drove, what really drives reform in any financial market is actually size. See, when, when markets hit a certain size threshold, right. it really starts to, it starts to stress the traditional concepts of how the market should work. Because a lot of those concepts are rooted in, um, basically, uh, rooted in, in, in a, um, a market that's much, much smaller than the one you have today. So, to give you just context on the difference in size, because you're talking about GDP, and I think that is a really good measure. But I think another way to give people an idea of the difference in size between the corporate bond market um, uh, of you know not so long ago and today, in 2002, the U.S. corporate bond market was about 2.2 trillion in size. Yep. And and today, um, I think we're close to about nine trillion. Yeah. And anytime I, I talk numbers with people, I try to remind them a dollar is to a million what a million is to a trillion. <laughs> so mm. that's a that's a big market. And in fact, the the outstanding size of the the corporate bond market is bigger than the U.S. equity market now. Now, in terms um, of the size, Chris, uh, what, what I'm trying to see, what I see here is the magnitude of triple B's of that like 9 trillion is approximately 30%. And when I look at the categorization of junk bonds, I see that yeah. in that 9 trillion, it's potentially 25%. And what I've also noticed, and this is the point of concern, is that for most of those junk bonds within the 9 trillion, I think that a lot of them or more than half of them are actually refinancing previous debts that they had. So not only do oh, you yeah. have size, now you have a potential contagion here. Well, okay. Um, see, this is this is, I think, a really interesting question, Peter, because the the I think what the what's happening in the market, and it really, I think the Greek default, or which was labeled not a default, was sort of an illustration of something that's happening that I'm concerned about when it comes to debt, mm -hmm. and we we seem to um, try to avoid at all possible turns, default now. And so the widespread defaults that you're thinking or the, the a real spike in default rates, to me, I think that the reaction, given what we've seen from central banks and governments, what you will see is the government effectively stepping in via the central bank to um, bail companies out who are close to default if they are deemed to be systemically important. Right. I mean, this is what happened with the banking industry. So I'm less concerned about, you know, defaults actually creating a, 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 a market-wide correction. Because what we have, and it's really, really unprecedented, is we have a buyer in the market, or we have multiple buyers in the market of debt that have 
unlimited balance sheet and are not risk averse. Right. I, I you, think, I think, <laughs> yeah, what's, what's interesting about that, Chris, is that I think that those statements of like unlimited balance sheet probably had more validity pre 2007. I don't know to what extent these central banks are being exhausted. Um, when I get a chance to look at the balance sheet of some of these central banks, I, I get a sense that they also have uh, some massive debt to equity ratios if you were to analyze it like um, a, a company, basically. So it would be interesting to see what happens. I, I think irrespective of that, though, is that the the magnitude of volatility that could occur based on the defaults that could be happening is um, a, a, an interesting point. But perhaps this can also help uh, lead to additional modernization of the, the bond market. I, I suspect that there's about 1.5 trillion that's going to be due in the next five years. Yeah. Look, there's, there's, there's no question, uh, the bonds are going to be due, but, but the appetite for credit right now, the appetite really for yield right now is so high. Yep. Um, due, due to the fact that central banks have, have really distorted returns. By being like the the sixteen hundred pound gorilla in the marketplace right. and lowering yield yields consistently, that even people are not buying debt based on fundamentals anymore because the fundamentals will tell you that you're buying really really expensive paper right now where you're not being compensated for the risk that you're taking on. I mean, some even chuckle at the notion of high yield when the yields aren't high. So I'm not necessarily concerned that people will start to back away from this market to the point where, you know, when these bonds come due, these companies won't be able to refinance. They'll be able to refinance no problem because there's so much cash sitting on the sidelines. What I do think will bring around modernization of the bond market, though, will be the realization that the values that we place on these massive bond portfolios are completely disconnected from the actual values of the securities. And, and, and that we've actually seen a few times. We saw it at the end of 2015 when you had uh, Third Avenue and Avenue Capital and Saba having issues around meeting redemptions mm-hmm. and issues and, and, and issues between, in particular with Saba, there was a big basis between what Saba was telling their end investors, that what the value of their portfolio was in terms of, you know, the the fund that they had created, but then what the actual value was when they liquidated. Chris, go, going back to that that statement about the underlining fundamentals of companies, when yeah. you take a look at a company's ability to basically pay its um, interest expense. For example, and and I, I think default rates are actually up, aren't they? Yeah, d- default rates are, are are up, but in terms of the actual analysis, the fundamental analysis around where bonds should be trading, mm. I I, th- I think that that is being woefully distorted, and the, and the reason is is quite simple. Like when you have a a buyer, an unnatural buyer who's not only buying but they're also telling you. I'm going to be buying a lot of bonds. It completely throws the market out of whack. Right. So that the market's really trading based on what would be technical distortions and not actual fundamentals. And that is always worrisome. It's, it's obviously much less worrisome when the market's rallying, 
which is what it's basically been doing over a prolonged period of, uh, period of time. But when it really becomes a problem for people is when the fundamental and the technical values are distorted when you're actually trying to liquidate. When you're saying, wait a second, uh, why am I selling at distressed levels when the credit quality of this underlying company is actually pretty sound? Right. That's when you hear the weeping and the wailing and the gnashing of teeth in a marketplace. You don't really hear it when the distortions are on the way up. And that's what basically has been going on since 2008. Isn't the issue that many of these companies, say, for example, the ones that would qualify under the junk category, don't have the sound fundamentals and probably would risk defaulting? For example, if you're in a very capital intensive LNG or oil and gas company, and right now you're being hit on some multiple fronts, right? Low commodity prices, high cost yep. of extraction, the inability to service your, your credit, you know, that, that's where it's an interesting confluence. In fact, the oil and gas sector are, are massive in terms of, uh, corporate debt. Yes, they are. But if, if you're, I mean, if you're looking, are you examining this in the way that you're looking for, like, what will change the way that people want to trade this market? What will make the market modernize? I just don't think it's going to be born out of necessarily a default. It could be born out of actually, you know, like, something more spectacular, like fraud, right? Like, right. the way that, that, that Enron tra changed the way that people wanted to tra trade energy because they realized, like, this actually doesn't work. Right, right. Uh, and so... You know, you're, you're going to get ebbs and, and ebbs and flows in certain industries, and and no question about it, the energy sector whipped the market around. Especially in in 2015, you had some desks take massive losses due to energy, but we're we're also seeing an absorption rate in the market that is completely unnatural. And what I mean by an absorption rate is, you know, you're seeing new deals come to the market and be four or five times oversubscribed. Because there's such a, a, a thirst for yield. yield, there's such a thirst for credit, right. um, that 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 you know, I I just don't I don't believe that the bid will leave this market on mass to to form a massive correction. Well, like somebody's going to step in and 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 slap and and even and even buy bonds that are next to distressed levels if it comes to the right yield. In terms of modernization right now, like what is it that we understand about the corporate bond market? I, I know that um, one time on Business Insider, you started highlighting some really fun facts. I, it would it, I think it would be of use for us to restate some of those. Sure. Um, what, what I think is fascinating about the corporate bond market is we're at an inflection point where, you know, the same way I talked to you about the equity market. Um, where there was this cultural shift where who was calling the shots was changing mm -hmm. in the 60s. Well, that's been going on actually over the past 10 years or so, where who's really calling the shots around how the market is going to evolve has shifted from the market makers to the actual buy side. And really the large, the larger buy side accounts are the ones, um, dictating how the market is evolving now. Now, um, but the way to, fix the problems that are occurring in the in the corporate bond market first is to acknowledge the problem something really interesting peter and most people have not i don't think they've really picked up on this in 2014 you had one of the biggest asset managers in the corporate bond market saying the market's severely fractured the, there's a massive liquidity problem and somebody needs to do something about this 
But then less than eight months later, that same asset manager came out in the market and said, there's no liquidity problem. Hmm. And you actually have Liberty Street Economics, which is the Fed's blog, saying there's no liquidity problem in the corporate bond market. Now, what's really interesting here is the the tone has changed. Now, what people, I think, uh, or some people are assuming the change in tone is due to the fact that when there was a lot of squawking about the lack of liquidity in the market by the buy side, the response from regulators was to um, come up with regulations that the buy side would have to abide by. This frightened the buy side. Right, right. So then they stopped saying there was a liquidity problem. And now when, when, you, when you look at Liberty Street Economics, they're looking at bid-ask spread in the corporate bond market and they're saying it's been tighter than it was in pre-crisis levels. We don't have a liquidity problem. What's fascinating about the way that the Fed is looking at the liquidity issue is that they're looking at it using a corrupted data set. You can only measure bid-ask spread in the corporate bond market by the available data that can track bid-ask spread, and that is post-trade data. Right. So, so they're looking at trace data, which is telling you when something trades, and they're saying, from what we're looking on trace, bonds are trading at really tight spreads. But what they're not telling you, and what they haven't looked at is, how heavily weighted is the trace data with actively traded bonds? It's like if you were going to judge the quality of execution in the equity market by looking at how Microsoft and Apple trade. Right. Those, those do not represent the broader market. And just to give you a sense of this, you know, um, frequency of trading is a, is a, uh, something I believe has a massive impact on how markets evolve. So when you look at the corporate bond market, 1.5% of all QCIPs, individual bonds, mm-hmm. will trade every day in a calendar year. The other 98.5% do go at least a 24-hour period without a trade occurring. Much much of them go, uh, or a lot of bonds go a lot longer than that. So you're talking about, a mo- uh, if you're only going to be looking at post-trade data to figure out how healthy the market is, you're only going to be looking at data that's coming from the most actively traded bonds, and that's a really, really poor indication of market health. Thank you very much, Chris. Oh, you're very welcome, Peter, and, and um, I hope you enjoyed the conversation. We hope you enjoyed this mastermind session. If you'd like to contact Peter Pham or Phoenix Capital, please email info at phx-cap.com.